We are on Lord's Day 6. I would simply remind you, if you haven't yet, pick up one of these books. There's also an envelope to uh, make a contribution. Uh, we're asking $5 per book. If you can give more and help somebody who probably may not have $5, uh, that would be really great. It would be generous on your part. It would be a blessing to somebody else, and you will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to bless others so that they might be a blessing to others. Okay? Well, we're taking a look at Lord's Day 6 and the title of the Mediator and Redeemer, and I want to lead in with one of my favorite passages from Matthew, the 18th chapter. Jesus has been talking about sin and about those who sin against you, how you are called to forgive. So in verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And, you know, Peter was being real generous. The Jewish regulation was you only had to forgive three times. And after the thir third time, when they did it the fourth time, pow, you got him. Okay, so what does he do? He says, I'll take those three times, I'll double it, and I'll add one for good measure. <laughs> My, what a good boy am I. <laughs> uh, you got to read between the lines a little bit on this. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven for the same offense in the same day. 490 times, if a person does it to you 490 times in the same day, you are to forgive them. Astronomical. I know I've known people who have uh, done things against me once or twice in the same day, but I've never numbered them 490. In other words, complete forgiveness. Oh, you have? Uh, going on. <laughs> and then Jesus said this, told this parable. Remember, we're in Matthew, one of the books of parables. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was about 20 years' wages for a bondservant, who this person is. 10,000 talents is about 500 years of labor. Now, how he ever got into that far debt, we have no idea. Maybe his wife wanted a Mercedes instead of a Hyundai. His children wanted the latest video game instead of being pleased with the other one. However it is, it's an astronomical debt. And so the king does what kings do. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now maybe he had put some of this money aside and they looked at his books and said, we'll get some of it back. But how in the world would they ever get back 500 years of wages? from he, his wife, his children, and what he had. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. You got to be in the courtroom. The king is sitting there with accounts. And the guy said, be patient with me. I will repay you everything. 500 years of labor. And the king probably just burst out laughing. This is ludicrous. You have an astronomical debt. It would take you, what, if he worked 50 years, it would take you 10 lifetimes to be able to pay me back what you owe me. You only have one. And those 10 years are that you never pay anything for rent, for food, for clothing, for anything in life. Everything that you earn comes back to me. That's the debt that he had. Astronomical debt. Then he goes on. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, kings can do that, but there's still a price to be paid because the money that this man took is not necessarily the king's money. It's the kingdom's money, and the debt has to be repaid. So the question is, where, from where did the money come? Well, the king goes into his back pocket, pulls out his wallet, rolls out 10,000 talents, and he puts it in the treasury. The king pays for what the servant owed, and the servant goes free. No debt, no penalty. He can go back to work and still get his wife the Mercedes and whatever it is. But the king had to pay the debt. Now, that's not the end of the story. We'll get to there later on as we study the Heidelberg Catechism. But I bring you that first part of the parable because that is our issue. That's what we've been studying as we've been looking at this. As we take a look at like day four and the questions about our own sinfulness, we are capable, question eight, we are completely incapable of any good and prone to evil. Can it go unpunished? No. Somebody has to pay for it. Is it a person? Is it an animal? No, they're not sufficient. There has to be a mediator and a redeemer who pays for it. That's our issue. That's the misery we live under. And if you think you're, you have just a small debt before God, you're greatly, greatly deceived. Because you not only sin, but you add to that sin every second, every breath. And even the greatest things that you do have a taint of sin. And because of that, you are adding over and over to a debt you cannot pay. Now that's the thrust of what Jesus was saying in that first part of the parable. That's what the catechism is saying to us in the first section of misery. You are absolutely helpless, hopeless. You are in deep, deep trouble. And then it gives out one piece of hope. Question 15. 
where it says, What kind of mediator and redeemer then must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is one who is also truly God. And that's what brings us to Lord's Day 6. Question 16. Why must he be a true and righteous man? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. And we already learned from previous questions, we can't even satisfy for ourselves. And if you can't satisfy for yourself, how in the world can you ever satisfy for somebody else? And so the mediator, redeemer, has to be a true and righteous man. He must be fully man. Look at that quote from, uh, well, you can't read it on, you barely read it on your screen. I can't read it on my screen. Romans five fifteen to 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And indeed, the uh, catechism reminds us, has to be a man. And it, the scriptures make it a point to show the humanity of Christ. I s highlighted Galatians 4.4 4 that says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Born of woman, born under a reference to his humanity. Or you could add uh, Philippians 2, 6, 8, which is in your outline, being found in human form, he humbled himself be by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And Paul adds this, and I think he added especially for this kind of teaching, the man. Christ Jesus. This is what the scripture teaches. Remember when I introduced this course, we talked about early heresies? Of course you remember. Come on. We talked about the Docetists. The Docetists were people who thought that God was too holy to be involved with any of his creation, and therefore Jesus could not possibly, if he's God, become man. There's no way that that would fit into their system. But the scripture says no. He was truly human. And usually we don't have too much problem with that because of who he is. He's also called the second or the last Adam or man. And 1 Corinthians 15, 14 talks about that. This, thus it is written, the first, Adam, first man Adam became a living being the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We call him the second Adam to contrast those two. But that use of the word Adam is a way of describing he was a man. He was fully human, just like us. And therefore, he has the common experiences that we do. He got hungry. He had to have something to eat. 
He had to have water. He had to drink. He had to walk. He didn't just kind of float or fly or flitter. He walked and he got tired. He slept. He, did, he went through all of the growth spurts that any young man goes through. Everything that a human has gone through, he experienced. But he did it perfectly, without sin. That's our next point. He also must be perfect. First Peter 2.22 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is a man who knew Jesus very well. He spent three and a half years with him. He had watched him closely. He was one of his right-hand men, so he was walking with him uh, throughout all of that ministry. He was somebody who watched Jesus day in, day out, and he could say he did not sin. In fact, there was no deceit found in his mouth. How many of us have somebody go next to us for a little while and be able to say that? No hands get raised, right? All you got to do is be married, and you realize that's true. <laughs> or in his, in, in, when he's talking with the Pharisees, and they are accusing him of blasphemy, he says in John eight forty six, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, oh, that's an audacious statement. If I said to you, which one of you convicts, convicts me of sin? All your hands would go up. <laughs> it wouldn't take very long. But that's his case. You can't find anything wrong against me. He's perfect. But he had to be that way. You remember the Old Testament sacrifices, if you've been reading through, and especially when you get to Leviticus, that book that everybody loves to hate. It, it just seems boring. The reason it's boring is we don't realize how it's setting up the life of Christ. Every sacrifice, every animal had to be unblemished, perfect, pure. If, excuse me? Yep. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Yeah. Every animal had to be exactly that way. Or it was thrown out. So if you brought a little lamb for the sacrifice and it had a little black spot on its tail, just a tiny little black spot, not much. You could barely see it. If I put my hand over it, the priest would never see it. The priest would take your hand off and say, nope, get another one. But I spent good money for that one. I don't care, get another one. Because it had to be perfect. And so too does the man whom God would choose. No sin, neither was there deceit. On the second side, he must be fully God. Again, remember, one of the reasons I went through the heresies a long time ago was to give you not just a historical overview but also to remind you that in the first few centuries, the biggest argument there was, was between about who is Jesus. And was he truly God? And you had some like the Arianists who would say, no, he's not God. Or, or the 
um, Marcionists who would say the God of the Old Testament is not God and the God of the New Testament in Jesus is only partially God. Or the Arianists would say, you know, he couldn't possibly have been God. That's outlandish, out under, undeniably has to be true. But the church said, no, you're wrong. He was fully God. And the scriptures claim his deity. Look at John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's not a misprint. If we would say that, we'd probably say, before Abraham was, I was. And think that Jesus is talking about the longevity of his life. When Abraham was there 2,000 years before, I was too. That's not what he's saying. He uses a word that means Yahweh, God. Before Abraham was Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And they would accuse him of blasphemy. Why not? He makes himself out to be God. A human being. Who is sitting in front of us sweating because it's 90 degrees. And yet he's saying that he is the eternal one. Again, what an audacious claim to make. But he could make it because that's who he is. I also gave you a couple passages from his, the real Lord's Prayer, John 17. The, what we call the Lord's Prayer really is the prayer for the disciples. But John 17, where he talks about the glory he had before he came and the glory he would receive when he went back, the glory of God itself. And that's what he is talking about. And so he must be truly God. Why must he be truly God? Justice demands sins against the eternal one. Or justice for sins against the eternal one demand an eternal sacrifice. Justice is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That which you have sinned against must be met in a reciprocal equal way. And if you sin against the eternal one, the only justice demands that it be an eternal punishment. I've been reading the book Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, and I've finished the section about the assassination of Lincoln, gone through the Civil War. Civil War, 600,000 men killed, maimed, wounded. You know, horrific, horrible event. And people are absolutely ecstatic that it's over. And then John Wilkes Booth jumps into the booth with the president, shoots him in the back of the head. And later on, he dies. And they think that the death of one person is more horrific than 600,000 men dying. Why? Because he is the president. Because he was assassinated. Well, if that's true between human beings, that the life of Lincoln was considered more honorable and more worthy of tears than 600,000 men, how much more the life of the eternal one? A friend of mine 
likes to call sin cosmic treason. It's treason against the cosmic one. It's treason against the universe. It's treason against the eternal one. And justice demands an eternal sacrifice. Therefore, the one must have a twofold ability. And again, we're back to the questions we've seen before. God will God wills that his justice be satisfied. Verse uh, answer 12. He must make full satisfaction to that justice either by ourselves or another. It there are two things that this God man must be able to do. The ability to bear the wrath of God. First John 2, 1 to 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean he paid for the sins of everybody. It means that it's worth, it's able to go throughout the world and deal with sin. Propitiation. Again, remember when I was introducing this, I said that every profession, every group has its own language. Whether you're, whatever your work is, you have words that you use. John is an IT guy. He uses language. I have no idea what it means. He talks about it and I simply go, I am Pooh Bear. Bear of very little brains and long words bother me. Because <laughs> I don't understand it. But there are words that every Christian should understand. And one of them is propitiation. Propitiation means the removal of God's wrath from another. To turn it away. To avert or to quench that wrath. That is part of what Jesus did. He was our propitiation. The ability to bear the wrath of God. Because he was God. And though the, the span in which he was on the cross was anywhere from three to six hours, in those three to six hours being the eternal one, bearing the eternal wrath of God, he could satisfy that wrath because it's outside time. I think he dealt with the wrath of God between 12 and noon. So for three hours, he was in time, 12 before noon. Yeah, for one second. Now, <laughs> 12 to 3, for those three hours, the eternal one, who is timeless, took on the timeless wrath of God and was able to bear it. And only he could do it. Secondly, the ability to be able to provide for and to restore to us righteousness and life. And then you have 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was able to remove our sins, expiation, to cancel our debt 
just like the king did with his servant. And how did he do it? He took out his wallet, took 10,000 talents of bills, put it in the treasury, and there paid for the debt of his servant. He covered the debt. That's, that's what expiation is all about. And there is a difference between expiation and propitiation. Propitiation is to bear the wrath, take it away. Expiation is to cover the debt. And that leads to whoop, two things he can do. Excuse me. Um, no, I'm sorry. Who is this God man? The answer is Jesus Christ because he brings redemption. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for it. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Notice how Paul takes Old Testament and applies it to Christ. He was cursed for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the cross at times was called a tree. So he's not saying, well, he didn't die on a cross beam. He, he died on a tree. No, he, it's a euphemism. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He redeemed us from the curse. He brings us redemption. He also brings us reconciliation to restore the relationship that was lost. And sometimes I think that goes a little bit far, a little too far. We all have a relationship with God, whether we are believers or not, because we are his creation. We are a part of who he has made. The relationship is either positive or negative. And that's the difficulty. If you are without Christ, you live in a ne negative relationship with God. And that's not a great place to live. But when you come to Christ, it's a positive relation. And so the re positive relationship is done by reconciliation. Let me see if I can remember what I thought about last night. If I can show you this on the cross. I would simply remind you that my kids at one time wanted to buy me art lessons. Because nothing I draw seems to be what it is. You know what that is? It's a plus sign <laughs> that has a little, little more here. No, it's the cross. Of course, the cross is a plus. Here you have propitiation. That's bearing the weight of eternal punishment. Here you have reconciliation. Propitiation leads to reconciliation. Here you have expiation. Removing or paying the penalty, removing the curse. And here you have redemption. Propitiation leads to the reconciliation you have with God because the wrath is taken away and therefore you can have a positive relationship with him.
Expiation takes away the reason why we are in trouble with God because of redemption, because the price has been paid. And it's those two. You dare not confuse these two because they have different reasons for being there. And that is what the God-man does. He reconciles us. As it says in Romans 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You think you understand what that passage is talking about? Listen to the repeating word. You have, we, are recon, we were reconciled, the cross. We are reconciled, the application of the cross. We have now received reconciliation. And this is what Paul is getting to. Because of his propitiation, we are reconciled. Because of his expiation, we are redeemed. And it all has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Why? No animal could do that for us. Because an animal is not a human being. We're not on the same levels. We can't do it because we have such an astronomical debt. Even if we tried, the reason we're trying is the wrong reason and we're just adding to the debt. But Christ could do it for us. And that's what, that's what it's, he says he has done. There is also another aspect of this. It's called w, double imputation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we have Christ on the cross. And here we have puny little us outside of the cross. Don't laugh, it's the best I can do. <laughs> You're going to make me feel bad. Hieroglyphics. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the sin that is ours was placed on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin. God took our sin and he put it on Christ. That's the first part of the imputation. And the second is the righteousness of God. Remember, he is the perfect man, counted without flaw, without blemish. He takes the righteousness that Christ procured through his life, his death, and resurrection. And it's applied to us. And all of a sudden, we who 
really are horrendously guilty. Have the guilt taken away. And the righteousness of the perfect God-man given to us. Now, we do have a word for that righteousness. It's called an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean it comes from outer space. It means it's not a righteousness of our own. The only reason God looks at you is because he's given to you the righteousness of his son. And he looks at you positively because he's looking at the righteousness of his son on you at this time. Therefore, you can't make him love you more than he already does. You also cannot make him love you less than he already does. You in and of yourself can do nothing in your relationship with God. It is all the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness is applied to you because on the cross, he has redeemed every one of your sins. Past, present, and yes, future. That astronomical uh, debt that you have to God has all been paid for by the king of the universe who opened up his wallet and took out the righteousness of his son and the gift of his son and put it on your account. Now that's worth a hallelujah. <laughs> okay? That's the gospel. That's the good news. The gospel is not, I believed and therefore God thought I was good enough to have his salvation. Or, I did enough things to make me look very, very good. <laughs> I didn't forgive somebody just seven times. Now, I've been forgiven absolutely by God. Therefore, in the next few minutes when you sin, you look at that sin and you say, it's already paid for. And the way that God sees me is the righteousness that he's placed upon me by his son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And that's what is our salvation from the absolute misery that we have. Move on to the last question. Where do we find this good news? In the gospel, which is the good news that God has given to us. Question 19. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, afterwards proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and finally fulfilled in his well-beloved son. Notice how they define that gospel. They, the, the writers of the catechism don't go, well, look at John 3.16. Look at the New Testament. They begin at the very beginning, in paradise, where God said to the serpent, I'm going to raise up a man who is going to crush your head 
while you bite his heel. Rough paraphrase. Okay? Where he gives to Abraham the blessing. I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to not just your own progeny, not only your own children and grandchildren, but to the nations, to the peoples of this world. And he gave it also through the prophets. This afternoon, this is a cheap advertisement, this afternoon in God's big picture, we're going to talk about the minor prophets. You're all welcome to come. You'll have had a nice lunch. You can sleep on the pews if you want. I don't care <laughs> if you're tired. But the prophets again and again and again go back to the sacrifice and the covenant that God made with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will bless you if you obey. I will curse you if you disobey. That's the gospel. That's part of the gospel. It was proclaimed. And so the prophets continually reminded them, every time you go up to the temple and you take your hands and you put them on that little lamb and you confess your sins and you transfer your sins from yourself to that little lamb, and then the priest takes it and lifts up its head and cuts its throat and collects the blood under in a bowl. And then they take and they cut up the lamb and they burn him and, and cook him so that they can have lamb shish kebab that night. Every time they do that, that's a reminder that somebody else is going to be in your place taking your sins, paying the cost of your sins, and they'll shed blood will do that. See, when you get to the New Testament, they're not saying anything new than what was in the Old Testament. They're just expanding upon it. That's why the New Testament really is the deeper covenant, the deeper insight and meaning of the same covenant that God gave in the garden to Abraham, to David, to his people. And Jesus happens to be the one who brings in that better, deeper covenant. And then it goes on and it says, fulfilled by his beloved son. And we are back to my terrific artistic ability <laughs> right here. Where we say, take a look at what the cross is all about. It's our propitiation, expiation, leads to our reconciliation and our redemption. And we had absolutely nothing to do with it. The only thing that we can proudly say we gave was our sin. And then when we say proudly, I gave my sin, we kind of hang our head in shame because it was our sin that was given to him. That's the good news. That's what we proclaim Sunday after Sunday. That, which, that is what you must believe in order to be a Christian. We call it the evangelion. That's a transliteration of a Greek word which means to broadcast a good message, which calls attention to something. In this case, what we call attention to is not believe and you will be a Christian. It's we call the attention to Jesus and call people to believe in what he has done for us for us, on our behalf. One of the key phrases of the New Testament. He did it on our behalf. 
We are recipients of what he has done. That's what grace is all about. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He simply, freely gives his son and gives what his son did to you and to me. You've heard it said that one of the, one of the, the uh, ways in which we talk about evangelism is that we are one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And that's a fine saying, but I don't think it's enough. We are one beggar telling another beggar where to get the banquet. Not just a stinking piece of bread. Not only a, a, an old graham cracker that you got in kindergarten, but a banquet from which you get everything that you ever wanted and needed. That's the good news. That's what will deal with our misery. And from here, in the rest of the uh, catechism, we will take a look at then how should we live? If this is true as it is true, I probably should say, how do we live? Well, first of all, we live by faith. That's a sure confidence, a hearty trust in what Christ has done for us that leads out into a specific faith. So we're going to take a look at that faith, but also how that faith is expressed. And the way the catechism expresses it is it goes back to one of the earliest statements of faith, that which was used at everybody's baptism when they recited the Apostles' Creed. I believe. And it's those things in the Apostles' Creed, those items, which are part of the totality of our faith, of what we are called to believe. So in our day and age where we sit there and we want to pick and choose. I mean, we're good Americans. We love smorgasbords, right? I want that one. Oh, get, get away that liver. Ugh. Every part of that Apostles' Creed is something we have to give. Well, I believe in God the Father, but I'm not too sure he's creator. And I like, uh, I like Jesus, but this, this thing about him being God, man, eh, you know, let's leave that go. Or in our day and age, the other thing they do is they change the definition. Us being reconciled means we're reconciled with one another because everything's all, always all right with us and God because he's love. And love says he has to reconcile us. He's not a king who has to declare us and punish us because we have an astronomical debt. So we're going to take a look at the Apostles' Creed. And see what that means. And we'll take a look at it in light of also the Nicene Creed. I like to put those two together. See the complementary aspects. And how Nicene is a deeper creed than the Apostles' Creed. But they're two different purposes. Remember? Remember when you stand up here and say, let's repeat the Nicene Creed? And the first word is, we believe. It's a corporate statement. Apostles' Creed, I believe. I believe. This is personal. This is what's in it for me. Uh, the plane has landed. It's taxiing down the runway. We're almost at the, the gate. I'll give one question. 
Why would you use an illustration like that? Okay, that's a question. <laughs> Parable. Yes, yeah, the beauty, like, like that parable. I could read the whole thing at one time, and I only read half of it because the other half we'll deal with later on. But as I read it, I opened it up for you. So you got the, the full thrust of it. So the question is, and this is always the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you on your behalf? That's it. Or are you sitting over there as a sinner going, ah, what a good boy am I? What a good girl am I? And you don't realize the astronomical debt you have. One of the gifts, works of the Spirit is to convince you of how bad it really is so you can be joyful in how good God has given you something, a gift. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for a love and grace that would supply for us the deepest need that we have. We thank you, Lord, that though you are a king who could demand an eternal punishment for us, you reached back into your back pocket and pulled out what we needed in order to be set free and reconciled with you. Thank you for words like propitiation and expiation and words that sometimes don't even roll off the, t our, the tip of our tongue but are so filled with meaning and help to who we are as your people. Holy Spirit, drive home into the hearts and minds of those who have heard what you want them to know. Cement it into their lives Call it back when they need it the most. Remind them of your good love and compassion and pity and grace upon us and the great gift of your Son. That we may indeed be able every day say, He is risen and rejoice in our salvation. For we ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior, Redeemer, Mediator, and for the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.